Hello, and welcome to the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph. And I'm Ashley Wakefield. And we're here to take you on a journey through the boring parts of your Bible, books that you just couldn't finish when you tried to read them. Together, I hope we'll get to see some of the hidden beauty in these books, and maybe afterwards you'll love them too. But if not, that's okay. You will still get to tell your friends you got through them and have full bragging rights to your pastor. Just don't let it go to your head. So let's get started. Welcome back to another episode of the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph, teaching pastor here at Wayfarers Christian Church, and I've got with me in the cafe space, Ashley Wakefield. Hello. Hey, Ashley. We are still in the cafe space this week. We've still got some re- renovations going on at uh, the Wayfarers uh, Studios, so um, we're still in here. So if you hear any background noise, uh, that is why. Um, this room is definitely not sound-treated. Um, but we're working through the book of Isaiah, chapter by chapter, and we have hit chapter 60 one this week. Um, this is a great chapter. Um, one of the most powerful opening lines to the whole um, book of Isaiah, in my opinion, because um, if you read the book of Luke, this is the opening lines of this chapter in Isaiah is what Jesus announces after um, he gets tempted in the wilderness. And it's his first uh basic um, teaching in the book of Luke. Um, Jesus actually goes to the town of Nazareth and opens up a scroll in Nazareth and reads these first lines from this chapter um, and kind of boldly claims that uh, this has been fulfilled today in all of their hearing. And so we'll have some fun times talking about um, what this prophecy entails and how that relates to Jesus. I'm really excited about this one. Um, This is a very uplifting chapter too. Um, And Luke highlights this chapter in particular because this is kind of focused a lot on poverty and people in poverty and people in suffering and um, also even the uh, eventual death of all people and how um, they're basically trapped in this dark prison uh, after they die and what uh, uh, will eventually happen is a prophecy of that uh, getting um, all of those prisoners and captives getting released as well so that's a lot of a lot of cool stuff to uh, talk about in this chapter I'm really excited for it Um, it's gonna be a very uplifting chapter for once and so I'm really excited about that too just to um, really talk about some uplifting prophecies about what God is um, prophesying to these people in this time period and stuff so it's gonna be really fun did you have any opening thoughts before we jump in Ashley no I think that's it all right let's go ahead and do this the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities. They have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks, foreigners will work your fields and vineyards, and you will be called priests of the Lord, you will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. 
Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people of the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up, and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all the nations. All right, so uh, this opens with, um, like I said, the most famous uh, opening in uh, the Gospel of Luke. Uh, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Um, this is, uh, like I said, a, a passage that uh, ends up getting quoted by Jesus um, in a, a synagogue, actually, in the town of Nazareth. Um, and you can see why. Um, this is Jesus' first um, kind of... Uh, uh, teaching to this people group in the book of Luke. And what he's doing is essentially saying that all of this prophecy is getting fulfilled in him, and that's what he's come to do. Um, one of the things I think that we don't uh, focus on a lot with uh, Jesus's ministry is, uh, at least in the circles that I grew up in, I'm not sure, Ashley, uh, what your church background, how they taught the gospel, but a lot of the times uh, in my church background, they focused a lot on the death and resurrection of Jesus, you know, and the, uh, focused a lot on the cross and uh, focused very little on Jesus's three years leading up to that event. Mm -hmm. And um, in particular, one of the major things in most of the Gospels um, is how much he like took care of the needy and the poor and those that were um, in some way medically um, hurt and uh, having some type of medical ailment. And uh, a huge portion of the Gospels is focused on um, the miraculous things that Jesus did for people that were in situations that, uh, frankly, um, there was no doctor around to heal them of. And so uh, a lot of what Luke focuses on in particular is a lot of those stories that Matthew and Mark um, bring out first and foremost. Um, I, uh, Luke spends more time with people that are poor and impoverished mm -hmm. and uh, uh, specifically focuses a lot more on women because women were like the lowest of in that society in day and age, unfortunately. And so he has more stories about women than uh, both Mark and Matthew. Um, he puts more added stories about um, women and their certain situations that they're going through. And it's just this kind of focus that he has where he, uh, Jesus's first opening is he's basically coming on the scene as a fulfillment of these verses here, bringing good news um, to these poor and brokenhearted. That word good news, by the way, is where we get the word gospel from. Um, gospel literally means good news. And so uh, it's very important just to kind of focus on this as like the opening to this chapter, because um, a part of the gospel that Jesus was bringing wasn't just his death on the cross, but was also um, how much he was taking care of the people in that time period in the first century. And I think through extension uh, for Christians today, we kind of live out the life of Christ today and we're supposed to 
be continuing that good work in people's lives today. So that, that's kind of the opening that I'll just kind of start off with, with this is uh, how that works. I don't know. Was that so, uh, something that like uh, in your church context growing up, did they focus a lot on bringing good news to the poor and stuff, or was it a lot more focused on his death and resurrection? So I didn't really grow up in the church. Uh, my parents were both believers in God, but they just didn't really spend a lot of time in church. So I really didn't have like a church home that I grew up in. Like the first time I got saved was around when I was 14, when my father got sick with cancer. And so I started to go to church more often then, but then I kind of fell off of it like about a year after mm. I got into it and kind of, you know, did my own thing, kind of walked away from the faith. Like I didn't give up my salvation. I just kind of like, I didn't really want to do what God wanted me to do. I was like, this right. is too hard. Like it's just easier to do what I want to do. And then when I was like in my mid twenties, I started to come back to church and that's when I kind of really became involved in a church. So I really didn't have a lot of church experience growing up. It was very minimal, but the few experiences that I did have on and off, like if we went like on a holiday, like on Easter or somebody just randomly invited us or, or during that time when I was 14, it's like most, I, I think I would agree with that. Like I didn't really hear a whole lot about the life that Jesus lived out, the ministry that he walked out when he was on earth is sort of like the importance of him being born, the importance of his death and then his resurrection. That was kind of like the three main focus, like his birth mm. and then him dying and then him being resurrected. And so yeah, that was yeah. kind of it. Um, but yeah, I think that that's something really important that I never realized until I started studying that book, the book of Luke in, book of Luke, Luke in school <laughs> is that uh, like he does focus a lot on the marginalized and how yeah. like you see a lot of different stories in there about Jesus reaching out to people who are outcasts in society. And I don't I don't this maybe was like that story about was it Zacchaeus, the tax collector? Is that yeah, Luke? Zacchaeus yeah. is only in Luke. Actually. Yeah. And so like that one. And obviously, you know. Going back to the idea of the women, I think that this the story about, you know, him reaching out to the woman who had the issue of blood for 12 years, which I think is more than just in Luke, but it's... Yeah, that one's know, in all yeah. of them. But... Well, not John, but... It, in, in, <laughs> not in John. Synoptics. Yeah, John is like like on its own other thing, <laughs> yeah. going off from the other three. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was just really something interesting is that like, I never realized that the book of Luke focused on how much like Jesus wanted to reach out to people who were sort of outcasts in society and who were not welcome. And so he would reach out to them and it was just reminded me of that's something that we all need to be doing is reaching out to those people who are not easily welcomed into other people's social circles. So. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite examples of this, just for you guys, uh, kind of the more Bible nerds at home, um, in Matthew and Mark, there's a story about Jesus healing uh, a man with a withered hand mm-hmm. um, in a synagogue and it's on the Sabbath. So it's kind of one of the first like clashes between the Pharisees and Jesus over he- healing on the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. Luke changes that uh, person with the withered hand to be a woman. And it's the same story, but it's a woman that has the withered hand instead of uh, uh, a man that has the withered withered hand. So you can go look that up. It's really interesting. Just a small little. I never knew that. Yeah, it's very different. Um, But uh, yeah. And, and, you know, there, there are different explanations. Some people say that, well, there were two different uh, situations where Jesus healed someone with a withered hand and, you know, try and make sense of it. Uh, And I'll, I'll leave you guys to, (laughs) <laughs> do that work on your own. But uh, there's a lot of the same uh, Greek words being used in both stories. And so uh, it's just an interesting little difference between the, the gospels there. But I think that Luke's intentionally doing that um, to even greater kind of show the um, uh, how much Jesus cared about those that were marginalized. So um, yeah, uh, there's uh, interesting. We should, continue on that's just kind of opening uh up of the different 
uh, of these first couple verses here. Um, one of the things after we kind of uh, at the very end of let's see, yeah, after verse uh, verse two um, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and uh, the day of vengeance of our God. I should talk about this too. The year of the Lord's favor um, is typically associated with the year of Jubilee, actually, mm-hmm. which is a Old Testament. Um, edict that was in um, the Torah or the first five books of the um, Old Testament where uh, in, I think that's in Leviticus that it's first laid down um, where the, uh, basically the whole Israelite community was supposed to every um, 50th year after they get the land of Canaan, they were to revert all ownership of the land back to the original family that had owned the land. Um, so basically for 50 years, you could sell land and trade it and stuff like that um, and um, sell it to different people in different communities even. But at, at the 50th year, basically it was a hard reset where all of the land reverted back to wh- whoever had originally had it um, when they first entered the land of Canaan. And so it was kind of this interesting assurance that like, if you ever like uh, financially were just uh, destitute and like you put in a bunch of money on crops and like you had like a famine hit and you lost all your money that season on crops and you basically had to sell off your entire land to basically keep living. Um, there was this hope that once in your lifetime, because 50 years is about the lifetime of any individual, um, there was this hope that like once in a lifetime you would get what you had to sell to continue to survive back. Um, and that was kind of the whole cool uh, setup that God had for the people of Israel. Unfortunately, there's no real evidence in second biblical sources, like secondary sources or in the biblical text, even that the Israelites actually ever did it. We just have, it's, they're very silent on whether or not they actually followed through with it because the Israelites were pretty bad at following through with all the laws in Leviticus. And so we don't know if uh, this was ever lived out, but, um, the important thing here in this verse is that uh, part of what Isaiah is saying here is that it's the year of the Lord's favor, meaning the year of that land being reverted back to its original owners of a hard reset of things going back and this grace kind of being given to all of the people that have been kind of enslaved in the poverty situations that they're in. So it's just important to bring up because that's something that like in our time and culture today, we don't do, um, you know, even the closest I think we get to it is like, if you file for like chapter 13 bankruptcy or something like that, you can like get all your debts forgiven. Um, but yeah, we don't have any kind of rule set in place where like everything that you own, you could sell and then it'll go back to you after a certain amount of time. So yeah. Yeah, And I think that kind of goes back to the idea of, um, God focusing on the marginalized because like not even in this chapter but I know there have been several chapters um, throughout um, the Old Testament and even in Isaiah where it talks about how the Israelites did not treat the poor the right way right. they didn't treat the widows the right way or orphans the right way and so God is encouraging them to or punishing them even for not treating those people the right way and how he even like even when it came to sacrifices he was very he created different levels of sacrifices for different levels of income so if you were poor and you couldn't afford to bring a bull or a lamb then he allowed you to bring doves to the temple you know so it was just really interesting to see how God considers the finan- the different levels of financial incomes in the nation of Israel so. yeah yeah and uh, I should uh, point out that the second part of that same verse, um, which doesn't get uh, 
put in Luke is uh, that that year of the Lord's favor will have a day of vengeance as well. Um, and yeah, it's it's a part of just both grace and justice kind of coinciding in this one moment, um, which Jesus claims is part of like what he ends up doing. And I really do believe that like um, the cross is that kind of final cultivation and both like God having his final day uh, of wrath, but also it being a pouring out of the Lord's favor at the same time um, and giving comfort to all who mourn basically. Mm -hmm. Um, so we're going to kind of skip down just, uh, for the sake of time, we're going to skip down to, uh, verse, uh, three here at the very end where it talks about how they're going to be called oaks of righteousness. This is another thing that, uh, doesn't get brought up a lot, um, in normal conversations about, uh, Christians, I guess, um, is that there is a theme throughout the whole old Testament and even the new Testament, um, that, uh, humans are trees. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the idea of this, if you've ever thought about um, the fact that like when Jesus talks about uh, humans bearing fruit, what he's really riffing off of is this idea of humans being trees that bear fruit. Um, and here, this is part of that um, same kind of metaphor, only this time it's uh, the metaphor of an oak tree, um, and there are going to be oaks of righteousness. In this time period, oaks were kind of seen as sort of this like uh, powerful, strong tree that was really hard to uproot. Um, one of the most famous uh, psalms in the Bible is Psalm 1, and Psalm 1 talks about... Um, that a righteous man is a man that's a tree planted by streams of water, mm. uh, water, water, sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, water and, uh, it's leaves do not wither, um, basically. And then the wicked are like chaff that just basically mm. blow away by the wind. So it's kind of this interesting metaphor juxtaposition between a really strong rooted tree, like an oak tree mm. of righteousness. And then a very wicked uh, man that's just <laughs> chaff that's just like uh, I, I'm very familiar with chaff because I roast coffee all the time and my coffee roaster and uh, most commercial roasters have like a, a little bin that collects all the chaff and just kind of shoots it up into this big tube that sends it outside mine doesn't have that so all the chaff gets collected in this little bottom tray and so every roast I roast I have at the very end just this pile of chaff that's just like at the bottom and I have to dump it out each time I roast a new batch and uh, so I'm very familiar with chaff and let me tell you it gets everywhere it's just like there's no way that I can keep my roasting station clean it just like there will always be wind that blows it and moves it in, in this weird little crevice and it's just like it's it's impossible it's it's sorry I'm ranting too much about my <laughs> own problems but I will say that like i totally resonate with this idea of the wicked being like chaff because uh yeah i deal with it every day and yeah the opposite of that is just someone that's firmly planted in righteousness and doesn't sway right it's just completely um can weather any storm right and this kind of the uh, language and metaphors that um he's using about how um this people that has been like chaff for pretty much all of its history will eventually be called oaks of righteousness and so it's that call of like israel's been going off the path like chaff this whole time and uh, we're kind of moving moving them 
eventually, hopefully, um, through this prophecy that's being uttered here, eventually they'll get moved to what God had always wanted them to be, which is oaks of righteousness. So I just wanted to bring that up real quick as just kind of a a fun place to pause and kind of talk about a little bit because, again, it's just not talked about a lot that humans kind of uh, take on the metaphor of trees a lot in Scripture. Um, Let's see here. Was there anything in that first section, Ashley, that you wanted to touch on before I kind of move on real here? No, I think we're good. Okay. Um, so uh, we kind of have a break here, and then we move into a new section that's kind of verses four through seven here. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in this section, it kind of focuses on the cities that have been devastated and the ruins that have been abandoned. Um, sort of talks about how, like, uh, there are going to be foreigners actually that are going to work on um, the fields and vineyards. And I think this is actually kind of a call to the fact that like eventually the Gentiles are going to be included with, mm-hmm. with the people of Israel and like that whole eventual thing is going to happen. So is um, this also like a, like this, the call that Cyrus gives to the Israelites to go back to Jerusalem? No, to no, no, no. That was all chapters 40 through uh, 55 gotcha. was all the Cyrus stuff. Um, Pretty much from chapters 56 through 66 of Isaiah, um, we're kind of done with Cyrus. And this is, uh, for most people uh, that I've read on commentaries and things like that, this whole section is sort of... um, after they've, we, we, we can't really place this historically, unfortunately. There's not a lot of historical um, keys and clues to know just exactly where this falls timeline-wise. But what we do know is it's definitely after the exile, probably. Um, definitely after they've been put into Babylon. And it's probably either right after Cyrus has um, given them the land back or just before. Four. Um, and uh, there's a lot of debate on where that might fall. Uh, like I said, is we just don't have a lot of historical markings for this. Um, but most people that I read say that this is probably a section in which a lot of the disciples of Isaiah um, formulated a lot of more hopeful messages of peace and comfort mm-hmm. um, to the people and uh, grafted those into the rest of the book, basically. So um, it's it's really interesting section because it's basically uh, the these disciples of Isaiah, um, at least according to a lot of these commentaries, these, these disciples looking at all that Isaiah's judgment and all of his judgmental uh, words of uh, harshness, basically, and uh, giving some measure of hope at the very end for a lot of these peoples to um, uh, kind of grasp a hold of as they're going back into Jerusalem. At least that's that's the general kind of uh, assumed uh, structure of what this whole section has been about. And you can tell there's definitely a lot more focus in this section on um, healing and renewal in this section. So, yeah. Um, one thing to point out, too, is uh, uh, this double portion idea is uh, a theme that actually gets um, uh, brought up uh, throughout the whole book of Isaiah. Um, this is kind of hearkening back to Isaiah 40, where it says um, you'll get a, a double portion of grace and mercy in Isaiah 40. So that's kind of hearkening back to the I, Isaiah 40 chapter, um, just kind of cluing us into like make melding all these sections together. Um, and I really love this verse just in general. Instead of your shame, you'll receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And again, um, uh, don't metaphor... I, 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 tend to try and not abstract these types of things out. Like, I think this is really just talking about like wealth, you know, like yeah. you're going to get a double portion of wealth and um, you're going to inherit a double portion in your land. Right. You know, like, and it's like the idea is that like, uh, 
you'll eventually get back everything that you've lost through exile. And I think it's important to bring up that God is not against his people being wealthy, because I think a lot of people think that, you know, money is evil and God doesn't want people to have riches. And it's like, well, he doesn't want you to want that to be your motivation behind the things that you do because you know people I think people get like the word in that Bible verse confused and they think that they say that money is the root to all evil and it's not money that's root to all evil it's the love of money that's the root yeah. of all evil and so it, money can't be evil because it's just you know it's just paper and metal and coins like it's it doesn't have like a spirit you know it's just but people who the people who do control those things do have spirits and depending on the kind of spirit that you have you can either go into one direction or the other with it depending on who you are but I mean there were plenty of people in the Bible who are wealthy I mean Abraham was wealthy David was wealthy because he was the king so was Solomon Solomon was by far the wealthiest king mentioned in the Old Testament so yeah. I mean it although I will say Solomon's like not the greatest example that's true <laughs> <laughs> he did have way too many wives and way too many concubines so like yeah but I mean it's just it, it's not about like how much money you have it's just like whether or not you allow it to have control over you. So I think that God just wants you to not make God, not to make money your God and to keep him as your God, no matter how wealthy you are. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Luke, uh, Luke has a lot to say about rich people though. I like um, some of the most chilling uh, passages in all of scripture are found in Luke's um, account of uh, Jesus saying certain things. Um, one of my, uh, one of the most interesting is where uh, after the rich young ruler, um, tells Jesus that he's followed all of the Ten Commandments since he was a boy, and Jesus says, uh, there's only one thing you, you have la- uh, uh, lacking, and that is go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and then come follow me. Mm-hmm. Um, and the guy can't do it because uh, uh, he was very wealthy, and to give up that much, like, mm-hmm. it's a harder ask to ask a rich person to mm-hmm. give up everything than a poor person um, to give up everything. And uh, mm-hmm. right after that, Jesus says uh, very harshly, it's easier for a camel to fit through the mm-hmm. eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. And the disciples like take that pretty literally. And they're like, if that's true, who can be saved? <laughs> um, and Jesus is like, with uh, humans, that's impossible, actually. But with God, all things are possible. And uh, I think we forget that like ending section happens mm-hmm. right after that, because um, it's uh, very important to Jesus, not just to frame it as uh, doing even get, I read a book once by David Platt called Radical, which if you've ever read this book before, um, this isn't uh, kind of, I'm not trying to like say that that's a bad book or anything like that. But one of the things I think that David Platt misses, and if you haven't read the book, a spoiler here, but like uh, he argues pretty heavily for the fact that like Christians in the West should aren't taking Luke basically seriously enough and they need to like sell all their possessions and like live a radical life and live a radical Christian life is his whole point. Mm -hmm. And that you should like basically not be wealthy at all and always Mm -hmm. be trying to give as much as possible and not have accumulate possessions and always give it up. And I think the thing that David Platt misses is that ending part of that Mm -hmm. whole, um, section where it does seem like even though Jesus kind of lays that out as like a law, you know, kind of saying like, yeah, yeah, it's really hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God on his own terms um, because they have to give up so much wealth. Mm -hmm. Um, The whole point of salvation for Jesus, even them was uh, that uh, humans it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And so there is kind of this like balance that I think even Jesus walks that I wish, you know, 
I wish David Platt had mentioned a bit more and focused a bit more on in his book because he kind of made it seem like if you're not a good Christian, if you don't give up all of your possessions and things like that. And, uh, uh, was a little bit on the nose on those types of things. And, uh, for me, at least reading those passages, uh, was very, a bit of a, uh, pendulum swing correction from some of the extreme kind of radical things that he was saying. So, uh, again, not to down that book cause there is some good things in it that will challenge you, but it just needs to be balanced with that kind of grace that um, Jesus offers. Um, finally, um, kind of the ending. Sorry, did you have any comments on that before I jump further? Um, the only thing that I was thinking of was I was trying to think of a good example of someone in the Bible who was wealthy and handled it well. Yeah. And the only example that I could think of, there's, there may be more, but this is just the only one that came to mind. And hopefully this is a good one. I was thinking about Joseph and how he was kind of humbled first before he became wealthy because he was sold into slavery. He was in prison for how many years was he in prison? Like, uh, I don't remember. I don't remember, but he was in prison for a period of time. And then like, you know, he was supposed to get out because I think either the baker or the cook was supposed to remember him and they didn't. And yeah. so he ended up staying there longer than he was supposed to. And then after all that, then he rises to a place of power. So it was sort of like God kind of put him in a position where he humbled him first and then made him realize that the only reason that he was in that position is because God allowed him to be. Yeah. And so it was sort of like he handled it better than he would have if he had just went straight from you know, being at home and being the favorite son to wearing that colored cloak and then going straight into being like this, the secondhand man to Pharaoh, then, you know, things probably would have went differently. But I think because God humbled him first and then he got risen to a place of power after he was humbled, I feel like that it made it better. For yeah. Him. And you know, what's funny is I even know uh, some Christians that would argue that uh, I, I actually listened to a sermon once from kind of someone in that same vein as David Platt, uh, who argued that like, Joseph's worst trial was actually getting all the power and fame and money. And that that was like the worst uh, test that he ever endured. And he actually kind of failed by allowing fa uh, Pharaoh to uh, um, uh, give him so much power and money or whatever. So it's, it's interesting. There's a lot of different opinions about money and wealth. Mm throughout the whole of Christianity. And uh, I don't think that we've ever really fully narrowed it down because it seems very different denomination to denomination on how you stand. And I think a lot of that's just kind of based on conscience for me. Yeah. It's like how you, how, how you personally um, handle it. But I do think it's very important, like you're saying, to never let it be the master over your life. Uh, Luke will also give, uh, um, some lines. I think it's Jesus that says this. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it's Jesus. Um, that says you can only serve one master. You can't serve two. You can't serve both God and money. So, um, there is this kind of sense of just, uh, recognizing that, but, mm -hmm. um, the very end, uh, is interesting because it kind of jumps from, uh, talking from the perspective of the Lord in verse eight and nine, which, you know, you, you see this with like, for I, the Lord love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. Right. So we're, we're kind of in the perspective of God, but then in verse 10, we switch. And like I said, this is just something that Isaiah does a lot. And we switch from the perspective of God to the perspective of whoever's writing this and says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. Um, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations, which is a great way to end it. And this is pretty typical of these passages in Isaiah is generally there'll be like a prophecy with the perspective of God, and then there'll be kind of an 
like slight addition in at the very end where um, this disciple of Isaiah probably will insert these last couple blessing lines of just how much he loves God as a result of the prophecy that's just being made um, and uh, kind of focus in on a couple of things that he kind of gleaned from the prophecy of God. And in this particular uh, case, he focuses in a lot on righteousness and how um, righteousness is going to be like clothes that adorn us as humans. And also it's going to be um, something that sprouts and grows out of the soil um, and like um, kind of becomes a new thing that just begins to spring up and uh, become um, pervasive throughout all of the different nations like, right. And it's just this really cool image. I think here even Jesus um, might have used some of this to kind of talk about um, the parable of the mustard seed and how his kingdom um, will become like a mustard seed that like starts out really small and like one small little seed and then grows into this thing that just invades the whole earth. Right. And I think, I think he's probably riffing a little bit on this whole passage overall when he's, um, telling that parable because there's a lot of the same kind of uh, language of it just being all over and clothing all of us. And yeah, it's a really beautiful kind of metaphoric image that we get to kind of hang out with as this um, writer is close as this whole thing. Um, and it's really important again, just to remind you that like righteousness as a topic, it doesn't just mean moral good goodness. It also means like right things being done, like just things being done. And one of those right just things is people getting financial security right like people being in a place that they're not poor like that's a right thing that needs to happen um, is for people not to be starving and to be um, desolate and to be in deserts right and I think that's kind of what um, this uh, writer is focusing on in, in this whole chapter is there's finally going to be good news to the poor um, good news to the captive right um, good news um, for all of those people that have uh, felt um, abused and been mistreated and been cheated and um, finally they're going to have right things happen in their life. So yeah, it's a great way to close this whole chapter. Did you have any final thoughts before we end this, Ashley? Um, I guess I was thinking about the concept of wealth again and at the end of this chapter and how I, this kind of verses 10 through 11 kind of reminds me of this idea of spiritual riches versus, versus just natural riches, like actual money and how, um, God views our prosperity differently than we typically do. And it kind of reminds me of that verse where he's talking about that. And I can't remember what book it's in, but it's like the one where he talks about like, are not two sparrows sold for a coin, but then, you know, that God still, he he still remembers them. And so, and it talks about how, um, trying to get my thoughts together because <laughs> I'm trying to quote something. Oh, no, no, book. And so like, it talks about how like, it's the body not more than clothing and life not more than food. And so it's like the idea that God views sustaining us and our prosperity and our wealth differently than we do. Not because he doesn't want us to have those natural riches, but just because he values and he wants us to value those spiritual riches. And when I think about spiritual riches, I kind of think about what he's talking about here. Like the idea that our soul rejoices in God um, and how that in itself is like wealth for us and how righteousness can can be wealth, not literal wealth, but spiritual wealth, how it creates something that can last from generation to generation, which is better than just money because righteousness can do the same thing. Like when you're impacting people's lives in a way using righteous actions and it impacts people's lives for the rest of their lives and that in itself also lasts forever. And then God also sees that as something that is eternal as well. Yeah, I think think you're referencing uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he kind of walks through some of that. Um, One of the things too uh, is in John, he talks about how um, uh, this is at the story of the woman at the well when um, 
she's uh, trying to get water, uh, Jesus is very coy with her and uh, tells her like, uh, drink this water and this well over here and you're going to have to, you're going to be thirsty again. Right. Like, you, you know, like mm-hmm. materially speaking, like you're always going to have uh, to be thirsty, but um, what I have to give you um, will make you never thirsty again. And so she's like perks up real quick. Cause like, you know, she's like, Oh, I would love to drink some water that I never have to drink water ever again. You right. know, like, um, and eventually uh, in a couple chapters later, he'll say the same thing about bread and say that um, he's the bread of life. And if they eat from him, they'll never have to eat, uh, eat of bread again. And I think the point there is what you're kind of hitting on um, is the point that like um, there is uh, kind of this um, decaying atmosphere to all of the material life. Like mm-hmm. um, uh, pa- Paul uses this language of um, this world is perishing basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and that one, after we have perished, um, we put on an imperishable body is what he says. And it's this idea of like, we transform from, uh, a life filled with perishable things to a life filled with imperishable things. Right. And I think that's kind of the whole point is like, you know, wealth is perishable. Like you can't take wealth with you. Um, and, uh, so there is this sort of beginning kind of seed of like Christianity where we sort of put off the perishable and put on the imperishable even before we're fully there yet, you know? Right. And and it's that kind of um, idea of like keeping your mind uh, focused on the things that are to come uh, and valuing those things uh, as I, I think of, I think what you're hitting on a lot, just focusing on that. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much, guys, for tuning into this episode. Um, It's been fun to talk about this, and we'll be back in your feed again next week. I will say there's only like five chapters left. I know. It's going to be so sad. I'm like, what are we going to do after it's over? (laughs) Read more Bible. That's what we'll do. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks, guys. You guys take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.